0: Hello, welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Rodayna Azman, here with my friend Chavruta and Gordon. Our DAF today, Masachad Yavamot, DAF, pay bad, page 82. So we have a little more, much more of a discussion today about this opinion of Rabbi Yochanan about whether or not Truma today is actually a deraita. And the Gemara begins as follows. Rabbi Yochanan, Truma is Did Rabbi Yochanan hold that Truma today, meaning post-Betamigdash, uh, when many people were actually in exile, right? Is it actually a duretah? Baha and didn't we learn in a brisa? right? De kupot, okay, there were two large baskets. If there are two large baskets, achad shel chulen truma. One has, you know, hulin, uh, non-sacred produce, and one has truma produce. Belief name stay si'in. And in front of them, there are two uh, vessels that can hold a seah, one filled truma, one filled with chulin, one filled with truma. the naflu elu v'toch elu, right? And the contents of each of these seah vessels fall into those of the basket. So in other words, everything gets all mixed up with each other. Hare elu mutarim, right? So what do we say? So we say that all of it, all the produce that's in the basket containing chulin would still be permitted, right? Even though we would say Omer, Truma Latoh Truma nafla, betoch naflu, right? Um, because I would say maybe the Truma fell into the Truma and the Kulin fell into the Khulin. But what this Bryce is basically saying is is that we allow sort of this leniency that even though things sort of got mixed up with each other, that because Truma would not be a daraisa, okay? Because we're trying to prove whether or not Rabbi Yochanan really held that it would be a daraisa, that that's essentially why this mix-up case would be allowed, because we're not holding truma to a dera Raisa standard. But Rish Lakish, and Rish said, Bo ala truma." So he says this case is only true if there's more than truma. For Rabbi Yochanan Amar, shalo rabu min ha truma." Rabbi Yochanan says this can only be true if the hulin is not greater uh, than, the, than the truma. So the assumption here, you know, that, that, that only in that kind of case can we use this assumption that each type of produce sort of falls into its own type. So, So, mm-hmm. So, according to Luckish, who basically we know holds the truma today is only the Rabana. So, with truma here, right, which is only going to be the Rabana, he basically just requires that the you know that it that it has to be of a great portion, so that it basically nullifies whatever truma maybe was actually there. Ella Rabbi Kasha, but for Rabbi Yochanan, right? If he's really going to maintain that truma is a Rasa how can he sort of disregard this issue and even allow a mixture uh, that's you know it, and even allow a mixture? It doesn't really. And so what do we say here? How many Rabbanan hate? So the Gemara answers is by saying that what Rabbi Yochanan can say is, is that whose opinion is this Brisa? It's the opinion of the rabbis. The rabbis, Rabbanan, they're still going to maintain that truma is actually going to be the Rabbanan. But Anad Amri Rabbi Yosi. But I, like we're talking in Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi Yochanan doesn't actually hold like Rabbanan. He actually calls like Rabbi Yossi. And Rabbi Yossi had the opinion that a, that a uh, you know that a, a cohan who you know who was a, a who was a maphrodite basically could enable his wife to eat truma, right? And Rabbi Yossi basically would maintain that even today the halacha of truma is actually a deoraisa. So according to to Rabbi Yochanan, right, he's going to argue that in this particular case of the maphrodite who allows his wife. To not, but even to eat uh, the chaza and the thigh of, of the peace offerings, which we learned about, and you spoke okay But the point here is, is that this braisa doesn't contradict Rabbi Yochanan because the braisa is holding a in opinion. Rabbi Yochanan still can hold that it is a derarisa. And then the Gemara is going to go on uh, and it brings another braisa to Tanya, the Seder Olam. And I'll stop here for a second so you can talk about what the Seder Olam is. <laughs>
1: Okay. Um well, what's I think particularly in Seder Olam basically is a list of the events of the chronology of what takes place in Tanakh. So uh, and then it continues like from after like the from Brashheet, right? From the very beginning of creation all the way through the end of Tanakh. And then it keeps going really until the Second Temple. So a lot of um a lot of questions that come up in the interpretation of the of tanakh is about the chronology Re- who is older than whom what happened first because things are written in line- a in a linear fashion right you can't you can't show everything that's happening simultaneously and then the question is well how old was so and so at the time that they died and so on so seder olam has been really essential to many many commentators to the extent that the, the gemara itself relies on it right it's an early 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 work um to To figure out the the order of events, so to speak, from Tanakh on down. Um, okay, it's also called Seder Olam Rabbah. As far as I know, these are there's there's something later called Seder Olam Zuta, but Seder Olam Rabbah is what the Gemara here is calling Seder Olam. And I would say that as a work, I, I've I've used it. I've looked midrashim up. Right, it's functioning as midrash, really. Right, to provide that kind of interpretation of text. I would say that it is not a fun read, right? Because what you're doing is looking at basically a list of chronology. But what it is, is a hugely, hugely helpful text to put things in order according to how Chazal saw things happening in order. Obviously, there's going to be different opinions uh, because that's the nature of things, right? Obviously, you know, you could say, well, it says in Seder Olam this and it says in some other Midrash something else that contradicts. It's not that Seder Olam is more authoritative necessarily. It is earlier. And the fact that it is earlier gives it a, a fairly, uh, the same way it's not so interesting to read. It's, a, it's not fair. Someone will find it interesting to read and, and come back and tell me that I was wrong. That's fine. But what I mean is it's not, there's not the, the drama is from figuring out how, the, how Tanakh works and then figuring out how Chazal thought, right, that this, is they're using this as a way of interpretation. So it happens to be that I love Cedar Olam, because it puts everything in such a nice, organized package. Does it line up with, uh, you know, the biblical scholarship of today, academic scholarship? No, of course not. It's rabbinic interpretation of the text that gives us chronologies. But, you know, as a scho- as scholars of text, I think that it's, you know, very, Helpful and essential. Um, also, you know the fact that Rabbi Yossi, right? You mentioned Rabbi Yossi before. It, it's not surprising that his name is now affiliated with Seder Olam or Seder Olam Rabbah.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think what's also interesting about Seder Olam is that it goes beyond, like it goes in the time of the Mishnah. So it's sort of in a way like right, connecting right. Exactly. all of history, like that. That's to me that to me that's always been the interesting the piece second of temple. Seder right, it, it goes that far, right. Okay, so now that we all understand what Seder Olam is, let's look at actually very interesting dresses that they give here. And they quote a Bryce of the Tanya of the Seder Olam. So this is a Pasuk in Devarim chapter 30, verse 5, uh, which basically says that there's, you know, the word uh, for inheritance appears here twice. The Pasuk literally means that your fathers inherited and that you shall inherit. Yerushal Rishonashni Ayeshlan Ushlishit Ein Lahem. So there were sort of two periods of time where there was an inheritance, right? There was a conquering of the land. The first would be during the time of Yeshua. That would be the Rishonah. This we returned from Babel. So what this implies is, is that in between the period of the destruction of the first temple till we returned with the Shivatzion, there was some sort of lapse of the sanctity of the land of Israel, Okay. But here, this b'risa says, ain but there is not a third inheritance. The, the sanctity of the land or the inheritance that took place the second time around, that actually never lapses, which therefore would mean that Kedushat Eretz Yisrael is always maintained, and therefore, Truma should continue to be a deraisa. But Amarav Yochanan, Montana Seder Olam, who wrote this Seder Olam, who has this interpretation that the kedushah of Eretz Yisrael doesn't lapse even after the destruction of the Second Temple is going to be Rabbi Yossi. And by virtue of that idea that the sanctity of, of, of Eretz Yisrael doesn't, with the destruction of the Second Beit HaMikdash, then Truma is going to take effect on the level of Del Uh It will continue to. <inaudible> So now the Gemara wants to raise another objection to Rabbi Yochanan's opinion. But does Rabbi Yochanan basically maintain that when we talk about this with the forbidden item with Rabbinic law, we don't require that it be greater? So then he gets into a whole thing with tikvah, uh, which I'm not going to read, but just you know, pay attention to to they're they're trying to figure that out. But but what's interesting here is sort of where the Gemara goes, uh, how they explain the Rabbi Yochanan can be maintained that it's a derisa. It seems to be a singular opinion of Ravyosi. It's not the opinion of Rebbenan, and it's based on learning from Seder Olam, which wants to maintain that the sanctity of uh, came with the with the rebuilding with the rebuilding of the second Beit Hamidrash is not lost even after the second Beit Hamidrash is destroyed, and that's why Truma would continue to be a Dera. So. I thought this passage was important because how we learn it out, right, quoting the Seder Olam, is very different than how we learn sort of other, many other opinions that we've seen. I don't know that we've seen anything. I think Seder Olam has come up before in our in our Yomi, but not in this way where we're like learning a halakha from it.
1: Yeah, I think that is unusual and exciting. Um, I'm going to jump down towards the end of Amabet. It's not really the end yet, but we're getting there. And we're going back to the androgynous, the hermaphrodite who shows up in the Mishnah. And, you know, Yordana, you also discussed this in the discussion of Truma, which is part of what's happening here as well. To But but I would say before we dive in, I want to say two things. One is that I think that we're the, the attention that is given to the androgynous in terms of. Not only the but, you know, halakha, the protective to and things like that. We're We're going to have the bigger picture here. Um, Um, And also, one thing I think think that we did not say was the rationale, right? We had this whole discussion over whether the person, whether a woman who marries the androgynous person, right? Hermaphrodite, who has both sets of genitalia, um, you know the the teaching is that she can eat from Truma okay we're gonna have a big discussion whether it's still right or Drabana, but she can eat from Truma and that the fact that that needs to be stated right the we I think we need to establish that the the I mean, the thought is that 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 answer is to say yes she can eat from truma. why would you maybe not be allowed to eat from Truma because if androgo is a, you know a person who has both sets of genitalia is that person, considered, and this is not going to be PC at all in in today's sphere, you know, culture of of gender fluidity and so on like that. But the Gemara's question is, is this person halakhically a man and has the requirements of a man and therefore as a Kohen would bring um, his wife into the frame of those who can eat truma? Or is this person considered a woman, in which case the, the androgynous person would not bring the wife into the frame of those who would eat ruma. So and now we're going to look at it inside the Gemara, but that's part of the backdrop that I feel like we talked about it as if we already had said it, but I think maybe, Yerden, if you said it, I don't recall it, but I know that I did not. Tanan, androgynous no se. So again, we say androgynous can marry a woman. This is the psak, right? And the point is that he could do it l-chat-chile. It's not just... If they happen to get married, they don't have to get divorced. And what that means is that the halacha is treating him, again, I'm sorry for the cultural di- divergence between nowadays and, and the Gemara, but the Gemara is treating this Androgunus, who is permitted to marry a woman, like a full-fledged male. Right, That's that's the point here. T'nei im nasa. So then the Gemara says, well, let's, let's take a step back, right? You want to say that the same the same androgynous person can enable the wife to eat from the korbanot, as we discussed yesterday and also your day right now. And also the whole machloka, but you remember, okay, and the marriage comes and says, yo, you know, take a step back, learn it this way. I, nasa. Not that the androgynous no say, but if the androgynous were to marry, right, then that marriage is valid. They would need to get to, to divorce and the point then is not that he's being treated as a male, but that he's being treated as if it is possible that this person is male. And therefore, you know, a- after the fact, right? The The Gemara the- the- <inaudible> goes on to say, it is really after the fact that the, if he's married, he would not enable the wife. I, I don't want to say he. The androgynous person, if married to a woman, would then not actually enable the wife to eat truma because of that possibility of, the androgynous person being female. That second interpretation here, or a state, you know, recasting of the Mishnah, um, preserves the ambiguity and the halachic question of what happens when you have a person who has two sets of genitalia. The Kabara, you know, of course, raises difficulty. no se katani, one second, but the Mishnah says no se, say, meaning he may marry a woman as a, a straight-up bottom-line psa not an after-the-fact situation. So then the Gemara says, well, according to what you're saying, let me take it again, take a step back. We're going to say that the language of no say to get married means that there's no impediment to them getting married to begin with, right? There's no concern that maybe he's really, this person is really supposed to be treated like a woman rather we're say, no, no, he's a male with two sets of genitalia. Fine. But halakhically he can marry a woman. Well, it's The government says, my ava, my aval lo nisa. what about those clause that happens <laughs> next if he does that mean that he cannot be married to a man right meaning if why doesn't the female side um you know dominate or what if it does and can this person then marry a man <inaudible> so the Gemara says like okay you know what? forget about all these I don't want to be flippant here, but the it moves on from all of this you know, more in-depth discussion over the actual personalities and focuses on the vocabulary and says that Nisa, the same way that Nisa conveys, if they had been married, if they were to have been married, which means it's a evident de- situa- situation, meaning not that it's not ideal, but that it has already been done. And the fact that it's already been done means that then you're dealing with a marriage that exists and what do you, how do you handle that? So the Gemara says, well, let's understand that we're talking here no say is also the avad, after the fact, that this androganist who marries a woman is also after the fact. So the question of whether this person can get married to a woman, l'chatchila, you know, again, as an, as an ideal, is difficult, right? Um, again, the, the Gemara has to detail the rationale of what does it mean that he cannot marry a man, right? But that's something that had been discussed previously. And then again, you know, if that were the case, then after the fact, that marriage would not be considered valid according to this rationale. So the Gemara goes on. Ama, amri, lo, no, say, lechatzchila, mashma. Can I say this one second? That word, no, say, um, will marry, is marrying, whatever, um, is is inherently an ideal situation, meaning a situation. I don't mean ideal way we use it in English. I mean um, that it's not an after-the-fact situation. It's something that w- was entered into wholeheartedly, willingly, halachically. That's lechatchila mashma. The idea is, no say means yes, he can marry a woman. aval and what if he is not married? Meaning, and then again, if he is not married to a man, that would not Lo nisa, meaning he cannot marry a man. That would mean that even after the fact, he cannot marry a man. The the avad Even so, even after the fact, the marriage to the man does not is not upheld. So halachically, what's happening here, I would say, is that the androgynous. There's a great effort on the part of Chazal to relate to the androgynous as a male despite the fact that there's also fem the, the person also has female genitalia rather than treat the person as female. Of course, the tricky part would be what if the person, you know, more identifies as a female as compared to a male and the Gemara makes that, I would say, quite difficult from a Halakhic standpoint.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a, as we said before, they take this topic very, very seriously. And try to, you know, sort of in all ways, try to figure out what exactly is this category halakhically and how does it exactly work? Um, and when we had that statement before, you know, that the Andragonist can marry a woman, uh, to, you know, and not a, 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 you know, but not a man, it was kind of like a, a sort of self-assured statement in the Mishnah that definitely we knew was going to require some Gemara to explain.
1: Right. And at the end of the day, I would say, the Gemara doesn't actually do all that much explaining. I would say it more repeats the point, right? And a little bit of explanation, sure, but it repeats the point. It doesn't say why we're going to treat the Androganus as male and not as female. It simply kind of makes it clear that that is very much the case. It doesn't say that... I don't know. We're going to give priority to the male side of a person. We like we can social. We can talk sociology nowadays. Why that might have been, but the Gemara doesn't do it, right? The Gemara just kind of reiterates the different possibilities of the different cases. There's a machloket. You can re- levy this against the vocabulary, and at the end of the day, it comes back to the same position that was in the Mishnah. At least so far, the Gemara is going on, of course.
0: Right. So I think, in a way, as much as. Androgynous the the halacha needs to be binary at some point. Yeah,
1: and I think that the tricky part of it is again, what happens if you have what would Chazal do if they had a real life person who was androgynous in a in a in a vis in a visible or tangible kind of way that that person was more predominantly female, and how do you handle that? Well, well, doesn't. today,
0: it's, right. Like if you had a baby who was born with what we would call ambig- ambiguous genitalia, you could do a genetic test. Like you could check the chromosomes and say, are they really male? Are they really female? And there's a variety of reasons why a baby could be born that way. You can do an ultrasound to see inside, you know, what, you know, what sexual organs are actually there. So it would be interesting to see, like, you know, how would that reflect differently based on what technology we have available? Versus, you know, in the times of the Gemara, they sort of just had to declare a category, right,
1: right. But so, like, I the Gemara doesn't ask it, or if it does not yet, right? This question of that I have of why does the default go to the men? Now I know that there are many people who will just you know yell and say, well, of course it would go to the man. That's what that ancient world you know valued. Women were shunted aside, and so on, and that might actually be the answer. But I would like the Gemara to discuss it because I don't understand from a halachic perspective. We have an androgynous who is established to be, you know, is presented as two sets of genitalia without prioritizing either one from a biological standpoint. Right? So I would like the Gemara to say, we go, we side, we treat this person like a man because, and give me a rationale why, because it's easier for his life because He's got external genitalia, and that's much more complicated to, to eliminate. Like, I, you know, right, I don't have a good way to talk about it because the guard doesn't talk about it. But I, I have a question.
0: A totally fair question. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank is reviews on all major podcasts. Thank you to Ravineet Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talent Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. Thank <music> you.